c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. Today we have another entry into my transformation into a boring middle-aged dad. Uh, by which I mean another case of 19th century nautical exploration. This time, <laughs> the mysterious fate of the Franklin Expedition in the Canadian Arctic. I initially held off on discussing this one, in part because the information available is spotty at best, and I had already dedicated several episodes to polar exploration, uh, but also because the Franklin Expedition had been recently covered in a well-received miniseries noted for its historical accuracy. Ooh, somebody sniping us. But uh, having recently watched the Terror miniseries, I have to agree that it is extremely well-made. Uh, but without, like, with how little information we have on the final fate of Franklin's crew, it is, of course, a heavily fictionalized account by necessity. And likewise, for the sake of entertainment, there is a fair degree of more lurid elements included, such as magical Inuit and a homosexual cannibal serial killer. Uh, and I, for one, doubt that upwards of 40% of the lost men were murdered by a semi-hallucinatory CGI polar bear with a Kill Bill-style vendetta. Thus, I feel a fuller discussion of the known <laughs> facts may have some value. <laughs> also, like, I don't think it was that popular outside of my immediate circles, so I don't know. <laughs> no, probably not. Everybody else is watching Stranger Things. You're just out here going, show me failed Arctic exploration. <laughs> well, that was the thing. is I was kind of disappointed by it. I was like, it's not bad. It's very well made. But I'm just like, I wanted them to slowly starve. <laughs> <laughs> You want an eight-episode miniseries of just somebody, like, slowly succumbing to a combination of starvation and hypothermia? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely, I, I didn't realize that's what I wanted. It's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> mm. Well. <laughs> Way more polar bear than scurvy. Not everybody <laughs> shares your taste in exciting entertainment, Jessica. Not everybody finds True. eight <laughs> episodes of gradual tooth loosening to be the hard-hitting television they're looking for. <laughs> we could have them, you know, come into conflict with the local peoples and find a traitor among their own. Uh, or uh, we could have what I wanted, which was them to slowly lose plasticity as, as their skin no longer has the ability to heal and organ failure. So... <laughs> Jesus, Jessica. <laughs> Jessica's like, All right, I want a mini series about the death of Elvis that is literally just eight episodes of him on the toilet. Like that's all that I want. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just want him eating like peanut butter jelly banana subs, and then I want like a really long shot from outside his toilet door with just like a long <laughs> that suddenly goes silent. <laughs> Eight unadulterated, <laughs> uncut episodes of the straining noises. That is, Jessica wants hyper-realism if it fucking kills us. <laughs> which it might. If it kills all of media, which it very well might. And you know what? If it does kill me, I want an eight-episode miniseries of that. <laughs> <laughs> Spare no detail, I beg you. <laughs> Good God. No, I actually recently saw uh, an exhibit on the Franklin ex exhibition at um, 
Here in Halifax, we have a Maritime Museum of the Atlantic because, ahoy, matey, that's our whole city. They have this exhibition on the Franklin Museum, and it's basically like this giant display that's like, aha, they were bad at everything. Like, that's... Yeah, nautical mystery or general incompetence. That was a weird thing I ran into while 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 researching this, is people are way too polite about what went wrong here. <laughs> well, yeah, because nobody wants to admit, like, it's it's an overconfident white dude who thinks he can conquer the Arctic for no reason. Nothing in his background told him he could do this. And even, like, <laughs> things in his background firmly told him he could not. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Sir, Sir John Franklin, uh, he was a longtime member of the British Royal Navy, having joined in 1800 at the age of 14, which was normal back in the day. <laughs> Ripe old age for employment. <laughs> like, you're a man now, son. You can fight France. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a chin hair? Off to war. <laughs> He fought against Napoleonic France as well as the United States during the War of 1812. Uh, not by himself, though. I believe it was a group effort. Um, I mean, yeah, generally armies are not a solo venture. Just <laughs> 14-year-old John Franklin by himself. <laughs> it's like the half-life approach to global warfare. Here's a crowbar. Save the world. <laughs> it's, it's dangerous to go alone. They've got guillotines. <laughs> But in 1818, he took command of the HMS Trent for a peacetime voyage led by Scottish explorer David Buchan in an attempt to head straight north from Europe and past the east coast of Greenland to cross the Polar Sea. Ooh. Uh, this failed when they were entirely blocked by sea ice, forcing them back after nearly crushing the vessels. Uh, so far, so standard. But the truth is that while Franklin became strongly associated with, with Arctic exploration, it wasn't because he was particularly good at it. And his career was a strange case of failing upwards. Because the expedition that killed him wasn't even the first time a similar disaster had happened under his watch. Franklin's first time leading a polar trip was the copper mine expedition of 1819 in order to survey the northern coast of the Canadian mainland, part of a larger drive of the British Royal Navy to find the Northwest Passage, a navigable trade route through the Canadian Arctic to Asia. They were fairly certain such a passage existed due to the fact that identical tusked whales were hunted both near Greenland in the, in the Atlantic and the Bering Strait in the Pacific. If this was one continuous population of whales, then there must be some path through the Arctic Sea where the water was open enough for whales to surface and breathe for at least part of the year. Spoiler alert, whales are better at this than you are. Whales, slightly more hardy than the average wooden boat. Um... <laughs> And also, a whale doesn't have to suck a lemon once a week to keep its teeth from falling out like this. Only two previous European expeditions had made it to North America's northern coast, both in the late 18th century. The first, led by Samuel Hearn, had followed the Coppermine River to the sea, 240 kilometers, or 1,500 miles, east of the Bering Strait. The next, led by Alexander Mackenzie, followed its, another river to its mouth a further 800 kilometers, or 500 miles, west of the mouth of the Coppermine. That river is now known as the Mackenzie, presumably named after Lieutenant Colonel Sarah Mack Mackenzie, female lead of the hit American television series, JAG. It's gotta be it. Can't think of another option. <laughs> Janelle, I'm here to talk about dead polar explorers and making insane references to American pop culture. And after this episode, I'm all out of dead polar explorers. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've literally caught them all. Gotta catch them all. And they're all dead. 
the third attempt in 1818 was led by John Ross, who attempted to reach the Bering Strait, sailing from the east. Ross sailed his ship, the Isabella, counterclockwise around Baffin Bay, the stretch of sea between Greenland and Baffin Island, the largest island in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, incidentally, this whole story will be easier to picture if you have even a vague understanding of Canadian geography, but I am also going to try my best to make this co all coherent, regardless of even if you're not 100% sure what a Canada is. <laughs> all of this takes place north of Toronto. That's the important thing to remember here. They entered Lancaster Sound at the north end of Baffin Island and sailed some miles in, but seeing mountains in the distance and deciding this was an enclosed bay, he ordered the ship to turn around. Two of his officers protested, saying that they should get a closer look, but Ross ordered they turn around. This caused some later embarrassment when the mountains turned out to be a mirage. If one were to check a map, Lancaster Sound is, in fact, an entrance to a big-ass navigable seaway with a straight shot all the way to Russia. <laughs> I'm embarrassed Whoops. for you. <laughs> Oops. Mind you, this is one of a few routes and often closed with sea ice year-round, though it has since become more navigable than it was in the 19th century. It never occurred to anyone exploring the North back then that they should just crank up the thermostat a little. <laughs> Soon you'll be able to boat there clean across Saskatchewan, so, you know, problem solved. We'll have an inland sea. I'll be able to sail all the way to where New York used to be. <laughs> it does need to be said, however, that despite the damage to Ross's public esteem, turning around at what appears to be a dead end is not the worst possible failing especially in a place as uncertain and unforgiving as the Arctic. The British public, however, thought little of an overcautious but otherwise successful survey into the long-ignored Canadian archipelago and looked far more favorably on the useless but thrillingly dangerous failure of David Buchan and his young lieutenant, John Franklin, to sail across the North Pole. It's basically just that meme where it's like, but did you die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but did you die? If not... Fuck off. Yeah, we only like people who die. They're just like me, actually. Jesus, Jessica. <laughs> the next year, another attempt was made, this time using a two-pronged approach. The first expedition was to take the same path as before, this time led by William Matthew Perry, one of Ross's mountain skeptic lieutenants. The second was to head overground through Canada to Great Slave Lake, then follow the Coppermine River to its mouth then to head east to meet up with Perry or reach Repulse Bay, negotiate with Inuit for supplies, and head back to York Factory over water. York Factory being a station of the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, by the way, none of this is Canada at the moment. No. This is almost entirely taking place in stuff that was owned by the Hudson's Bay Company or the Northwest Trading Company. All of this is private land that the British leased out to... British Incorporated fur traders. <laughs> uh, none, none of this is technically Canada. I'm calling it Canada so you know where it is, but it is not Canada. No, it's it's an extension of what is now a department store. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like if the early settlers on the Oregon Trail were crossing land entirely owned by Macy's. Like, that's the same vibe. <laughs> it's functionally what's happening yeah, they're here. still around. Uh, the Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, they eventually merge, but Hudson's Bay Company is still very much around, and you can buy socks there. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I think I own a blanket from them. You can buy bougie dish sets at a really nice French press. <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
his and hers monogrammed towels. You know? <laughs> this used to be a nation. <laughs> Ma'am, please leave our store. <laughs> you used to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Just Jessica wandering through the like old roots Olympic gear. <laughs> You were the conquerors of nations. <laughs> you ruled this land from sea to sea. <laughs> this overland expedition would be led by John Franklin. They're like, this is a good starter expedition. Just something to get you started. Entry level exploration. Yeah, just the Canadian Arctic. <laughs> overland. <laughs> It'll be easy. Have you been to Canada before? <laughs> no? <laughs> well, you went to the U.S. close enough. Louisiana's close, right? <laughs> you can handle Florida. Surely you can handle Baffin Island. To be clear, the clusterfuck that followed was not entirely Franklin's fault. His orders were at best broad, and he had a shoestring budget. This meant that he could only bring a small entourage of Navy men and would be otherwise dependent on external assistance for much of the trip. However... Franklin's boneheaded determination to push ahead, even when circumstances have drastically changed and his uncanny ability to alienate underlings through casual disregard for their safety, made a bad situation far worse. <laughs> so they basically handed this guy, they're like, here's a large wooden bathtub and a collection of 14-year-old boys. And he was like, this isn't as bad as it needs to be. I'm going to make this worse. <laughs> oh, they didn't even give him the bathtub. He had canoes. <laughs> literal bathtub-sized boats. <laughs> I used to lead outdoor wilderness trips with youth in, like, the summertime, and that was that was bad enough. People nearly died. <laughs> Doing this 200 years ago in the Arctic with, like, underfed teenage boys. No. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make that worse than it needs to be? <laughs> Franklin's party included second-in-command and Dr. John Richardson, Two midshipmen, George Black and Robert Hood, and lone seaman John Hepburn, after planned member Samuel Wilkes took ill upon arriving in Canada. Thus, a total of five Navy personnel. The Hudson Bay Trading Company, as well as their rivals, the Northwest Trading Company, had both agreed to lend assistance, but they had spent much of their resources warring with one another and used the ambiguity of the arrangement to push responsibility for supplying Franklin's men onto one another. <laughs> meaning that supply deliveries were sporadic and then when they came when they came at all members of the yellow knives nation an indigenous group had agreed to act as guides and hunting parties but only until they reached inuit territory and no farther because apparently they had beef <laughs> i just like that once again the two like groups of well established like white settlers are like i don't want to help him nah you help them no i help them and the indigenous are like <sighs> fine like <laughs> <laughs> The, the party arrived at York Factory, the primary port along the Hudson Bay, on August 30th, 1819. They were provided a boat, too small for their supplies, but left with the assurance that what they left behind would be sent after. Uh, they went approximately 1,000 kilometers west to Cumberland House, now a bustling Saskatchewan community of around 2,000. Uh, but then, <laughs> essentially, a shack containing 30 Hudson Bay employees. <laughs> you know, growth. There they overwintered. It was a cold one with little game. And First Nations people who came to the outpost reported incidents of cannibalism among the locals. Mm, I was going to say, <laughs> I would not spend winter in Saskatchewan today. Right now. No. No. 
There's nothing there but wheat and darkness. <laughs> I would not winter in Saskatchewan with internet access, let alone 200 years ago. <laughs> when Franklin left with an advance party in January, headed for Fort Chippewan, 1,400 kilometers northwest, it was so cold the mercury froze in their thermometers, and their tea was barely poured before it was frozen solid. Jesus. I mean, I we lived in Alberta. I've walked to the bus in minus 54 Celsius. It's not a good time. Yeah, one time when I was a child, I was let out to play in, like, negative 40 weather, which, for, for the uninitiated, is the exact same in Fahrenheit. Uh, and I <laughs> sneezed so hard that my eyelashes froze together. <laughs> That just sounds like your parents, like, being like, you know what? We need fewer children. Jessica, time to go uh, out and play. The school did this. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I'd been shitty in class. <laughs> this was the fun thing about growing up in this climate was how hard we all tried to pretend that this was, like, a functional, livable environment you could just have daily life in. <laughs> yeah. Like, you have... More snow days in New York than you have <laughs> in Alberta. In Alberta. <laughs> and the thing about like those kinds of temperatures is that like the sweat coming off your body into your clothing freezes. Like there's no bundling up in these conditions. No, it will cut right through you. I would have issues as a kid because I had asthma. I had pretty bad asthma. But if if you turn towards the wind. You can barely breathe because you're so cold. But if you turn away from the wind, you can barely breathe because it's creating a vacuum around your face. <laughs> <laughs> and you try wearing a scarf, and the problem you end up with is that, like, the moisture from your breath forms this big pad of ice over your nose and mouth. So eventually the you just can't breathe through the scarf anymore. When they arrived in late March, Franklin struggled to procure food and competent local voyageurs willing to take the risk of heading so far north into uncharted territory. He instead hired 50 mostly incompetent voyageurs instead. Oh. Uh, and, and voyageurs are French-Canadian fur traders, uh, many of whom would be Métis, of mixed French and indigenous heritage. And who were better at not dying. That was a skill that they had. Much more better at not dying. Although that's not going to help them. <laughs> <laughs> they are in Franklin's hand now. <laughs> they were still short on supplies, but left regardless in July, planning to subsist to a large extent on local game and what they could acquire from the local indigenous groups. They met at Old Fort Providence with Akaicho, the leader of the Yellow Knives Nation, who warned them that given what a rough year it had been, they could not be certain to have enough food, even given hunting. He was likewise skeptical of Franklin's claim of the Northwest Passage's usefulness to his people. A fair point, as over a hundred years after the full mapping of the Canadian Arctic, fewer than 30 vessels make the full trip every year due to its difficulty and danger. I was going to say, like, the indigenous folks have been kind of getting along there for tens of, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I don't <laughs> think they need another boat need route. You. They're good. Like, <laughs> have fun with your little boat trip, but we're actually all good here. <laughs> Sir John Ross himself described the goal as utterly useless to British Parliament, uh, but to an extent that was the point. Spending immense resources on a stupid, useless, dangerous quest purely for the romance and excitement of it all. Uh, this was peacetime, and they just had this big old navy doing nothing. It served a, on paper a purpose, but everyone was kind of getting along okay without it. And a lot of people died in the attempt. <laughs> and it was eventually solved by just cutting a hole in Panama. <laughs> Problem fucking solved. We found the narrowest part of the Americas and we just dug a hole. 
Which is also how we solved the problem of, like, the other way around, with just the Suez Canal. <laughs> Digging a hole in a skinny piece of land has always worked better than go to Canada in winter. That's just generally true. <laughs> Trying to navigate the Canadian Arctic, bad idea. Better off just digging a hole straight through a continent. <laughs> you know what? It was cheaper. Fewer people died building the Panama Canal, I think. Uh, nonetheless, Akaichu fulfilled their agreement, guiding them north in return for weapons, tobacco, and the cancellation of, his, of the tribe's debts to the Northwest Trading Company. They quickly ran, ran low on food, and Franklin maintained discipline primarily through threats. They overwintered once more, this time in wooden shacks they constructed on the bank of the Snare River. Temperatures ran as low as negative 55 Celsius, or negative 67 Fahrenheit. Uh, supplies inevitably ran drastically low, to the point that the voyagers found themselves pointing out to Franklin that you could only threaten a man with execution for mutiny in a situation where he is not threatened far more immediately by death through unprepared march into the wilderness. <laughs> I was going to say, at this point, execution is more of a fast forward than it is a threat. <laughs> it might even be a kindness. I don't know. <laughs> Midshipman Hood and Black, meanwhile, fell into a rivalry over an indigenous woman that they called Greenstockings, which might have ended in a duel if Hepburn had not taken their gunpowder away. George Back was sent back on snowshoes to Fort Providence to harangue the companies into sending proper supplies, and the Northwest Territories Company interpreter, wintering with them, William Whittle, negotiated a truce between Franklin and the hired voyageurs. Uh, Hood, meanwhile, uh, got, got Greenstockings knocked up, so, you know. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it's like they're just fast forwarding through the entire history of Britain and Canada. <laughs> I just have like yakety sacks in my head as we go through this whole expedition. I also like that they're like, you know what? We don't have enough supplies to feed all the people we have. Let us conceive an additional person. Uh, they set out again in early June, 1821. As the river rivers were still frozen, they had to drag the canoes on sledges for the first 188 kilometers. July 14th, they finally made sight of the coast. They likewise found an Inuit settlement, which was quickly abandoned in response. <laughs> These white men are dangerous. <laughs> the truest statement in human history. <laughs> you know, Disney's Pocahontas was not fully inaccurate. <laughs> no, that's actually incredibly accurate. These white men are dangerous is basically human history summed up. That is the most accurate line. <laughs> They're dangerous not only to us, but to themselves. <laughs> Upon inspection of the camp's food stores, most of the dry salmon from the previous season had rotten, and what newly dried meat was there was mostly mice and birds. Mm. At this point, the Yellow Knives guides and the company man turned back, leaving them to continue with a party of 21. Franklin stressed to the departing native that they must leave caches of food for them on the way back. This would be particularly important if the sea froze over and they had to make their way back over land. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's like, you you don't have enough food. The people around here are eating mice. <laughs> <laughs> and this is an area where you still have permafrozen rivers in June. <laughs> <laughs> they sailed east in the canoes, mapping 1,086 kilometers. Uh, or 675 miles by coast, by August 22nd. Their supplies were near exhausted, and they had not reached Repulse Bay. Encroaching ice and damage to the canoes from storms had made returning to the mouth of the copper mine impractical, 
So instead, they went up the Hood River, presumably named after Hood, I don't know, uh, and then <laughs> overland back to the Snare River encampment. The ground was rough and rocky, and the voyagers repeatedly dropped, dropped the canoes, only damaging them further. Oh, so now we have damaged canoes. We're eating mice, and now the canoes are broken. This would have been handily bad enough, but then winter came early. By September 7th, they were entirely out of food. Instead, they were reduced to eating a meager diet of lichen forage from rocks, which of course caused <laughs> explosive diarrhea. <laughs> oh yeah, rock lichen diarrhea. Bring it on. <laughs> uh, it's not even mushrooms, it's fucking lichen. <laughs> oh, we're just eating the green shit off rocks. <laughs> this is going great. Everything's fine. Uh, at one point, they even attempted to boil and eat the leather of their spare boots. <laughs> Boiled boot leather. A, a true delicacy. A northern delicacy. September 14th, they attempted to cross the Contoyoto River using the damaged boats, which capsized repeatedly, losing Franklin's journals and meteorological observations. Uh, <laughs> now we're wet and lost. <laughs> Uh, the voyagers secretly dumped some of their heavier supplies, including, understandably, the canoes, but less understandably, all of the fishing gear. <laughs> oh, so now we're definitely just not going to have any food anymore. Uh, it was also cloudy, so they had a fair degree of navigational issues, because a compass isn't going to do a lot for you when you're this far north. <laughs> no, they don't work after a certain latitude. They're just, they point, magnetic north is constantly changing. So you lost. Yeah, it just shifts around. Uh, which is probably what saved Franklin from getting beaten to death in the woods, to be honest. Because <laughs> the, <laughs> the French didn't know how to get back either. <laughs> 26th of September, they found a large river which had to be the copper mine. Unfortunately, as it was a fast, wide river, it would be almost impossible to cross. One of the voyageurs, uh, Juninus, deserted, never to be seen again, Probably the wisest person <laughs> on the expedition. Yeah, I mean, like he 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 died anyway, but like that that was that was a fair assessment of what was happening. <laughs> he probably suffered less, to be honest. Richardson, meanwhile, the doctor attempted to cross with a line tied around his waist, and mostly succeeded in giving himself hypothermia. Yeah, victory, flawless victory. <laughs> Everything's worse now. <laughs> No fish, no fishing gear, no food. We've eaten our spare shoes. Hypothermic doctor and the canoes are broken or gone. And one dude is now just fucked off. They remained unable to cross for days until voyager Pierre Saint-Germain made a makeshift willow branch and canvas canoe and crossed with a line on October 4th. The other 19 followed one by one, even as the canoe began to deteriorate. Two voyagers, Credit and Villon, collapsed and were left behind where they fell. <laughs> they are they are trailing dead Frenchmen at this point. <laughs> I was gonna say we're just we're just this is littering at this point. <laughs> this is an environmental concern. Clean up your dead French. <laughs> Leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but photos. Please clean up your dead French. <laughs> <laughs> it's just basic responsibility. The next day, Hood and Richardson likewise faltered, though, seeing as they were British, Franklin instead split the party into three. Good, now we've split up. <laughs> leaving Hepburn to watch over Hood and Richardson, and sending George back ahead with the three strongest voyagers to make for base camp. 
continuing himself with the weaker voyagers who were still able to stand. Franklin's party only made it a few hours before four of, four of the voyagers asked to turn back to wait with the British, which Franklin granted. On October 10th, Back's party arrived at Fort Enterprise, the Snare River base camp, and Fort found it devoid of promised provisions. They left a note for Franklin, and he they headed on to Fort Providence in search of help. Franklin's group of himself and five voyageurs arrived on the 12th. Two of the strongest voyageurs headed upriver to find whatever First Nations group they may, while two others lay down on the ground to sob. Good, so now we're just, we're just crying on the ground. <laughs> we are starving to death, surrounded by sodding Frenchmen. <laughs> New world successfully conquered. Back in the camp with the other three Britons, things had gotten odd. I will state for the record that while events I'm about to relay are possibly, even probably, the way that they actually occurred, they are, for reasons that will become obvious, somewhat controversial. Ooh. According to the account of John Richardson, of the four voyageurs who left Franklin's party to rejoin the convalescent group, only one arrived, a Métis man named Michel Terreault. This despite Ooh. the fact that they had only made it a few hours before turning back. He claimed to have become separated from the others and assumed that they would follow. He offered the British some fresh meat, saying that he had caught a hare and a partridge. This they ate gladly. Oh no. The three other voyagers failed to come back, and Terrell behavior quickly deteriorated. He went out hunting Ooh. and once again returned with meat, saying that he had gotten it from the remains of a wolf kill. He refused to harvest lichen, left for short periods and refused to stay where he had gone, and snuck around at night to eat meat. Uh, when asked to hunt, he claimed there was no meat left, and they might as well eat him. He even accused the British of having eaten his uncle. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's never this good to be this fixated on eating people. This is only Jessica should be this fixated on cannibalism. <laughs> you don't even eat cow. You don't eat any sort of meat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of vegetarian is this fixated on cannibalism? I know. <laughs> I think it's the I think it's the lack of protein in my regular diet. It's making me fixate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need I need some protein supplements. Maybe some iron. So <laughs> you stop thinking about eating people. Looking at my roommate getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> my beans with, with like a fixated look. <laughs> <laughs> On October 20th, Richardson and Hepburn went foraging for lichen, leaving Hood, whose condition was poor, behind. Hearing a loud gunshot, they returned to the camp to find Hood dead and Terre Haute with a rifle in his hands. Ooh. According to Richardson, Terre Haute claimed that, he had dis that it had discharged while Hood was cleaning it. Hate it when that happens. Somehow shooting himself <laughs> In the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> I especially hate it when that happens. With a rifle. <laughs> However, as he was armed and agitated, they felt unable to confront him. Oh yeah, no. I would believe any story told to me by an agitated man holding a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> I would believe it as hard as I could. <laughs> Over the next few days, Terre Haute became increasingly agitated, repeatedly asking them if they thought he had murdered Hood. Do you think I did it? <laughs> no. He says, holding the gun. <laughs> no, you're good, buddy. <laughs> Hated that guy. On October 23rd, Terre Haute finally left once more on a foraging trip, 
and when he returned, apparently with a rifle freshly loaded, Richardson shot and killed him with a pistol. Yeah. Now, there, there are a few issues with this narrative. The first being that while the British public would, of course, never believe that good Christian Britons would ever resort to cannibalism, <laughs> we are sensible adults with access to reams of lurid historical accounts who understand that civilization doesn't mean shit when you're starving. As much as it is possible that Terre Haute survived the short trip back by cannibalizing his dead or murdered compatriots before murdering Hood out of unhinged desperation, it is equally possible that Richardson and Hepburn were the culprits, and they simply fabricated an account pinning their actions on a dead man who couldn't contradict them. Entirely possible, <laughs> as for some reason, no formal investigation was ever opened, <laughs> and it is unlikely that anyone ever inspected the bodies. I mean, at that point, it's like, well, they said they didn't do it. Everybody else is fucking shot to death. So, <laughs> case closed, I guess. Uh, there was likewise a strange exchange between Whittle, the interpreter, and George Back. When Whittle, who was criticized for failing to stock the base camp, made such just, just such an argument, Back sent him a letter writing that things have taken place which must not be known. Oh, you know, as one does. I, too, like to write incriminating letters over the steaming bodies of my fallen compatriots. It's good. It's good. So, you know. It's all good. Now that kid's fatherless. <laughs> Jesus. Your white, dead, cannibalized dad. So just, nobody's having a good time on this trip. This is a bad trip. No, this is a bad trip. Poor Yelp reviews all around. If anything, the deader you are, the better it is. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, regardless, uh, Richardson and Hepburn then left to rejoin Franklin at base camp, arriving on the 29th to find that he and the remaining three voyagers were surviving by burning floorboards boards of firewood and eating the half-rotten deerskins that had been used as bedding and curtains the year before, having reached the point mm. of starvation where maggots are palatable. <laughs> We're just we're just eating leather and maggots. I mean, the leather thing. Honestly, I've had worse donairs. That's basically just Canadian cuisine. They describe them as good as gooseberries. Oh, oh, <laughs> Which, Jesus! Oh, oh God! <laughs> oh, oh, as good as gooseberries. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever eaten a gooseberry? I don't. I don't rate that highly. No, gooseberries. I will believe that they're as bad as maggots. They're bitter. They're, they're real bitter. <laughs> mm. Not a fan. <laughs> like, Saskatoon berries can be a little dry, but gooseberries, whole. Oh, if anyone made me a gooseberry pie, I'd assume it was a threat. Oh, you can you can <laughs> safely assume it's like 85% sugar by volume. It's like cranberries. They're great once you've added enough sugar to fell some sort of livestock. Before that, mmm. Mmm. There's a reason that Ocean Spray personally funds like, efforts to quash nutritional labing, labeling laws. Because <laughs> yeah, you are not ready for how much sugar their bog berries contain. They are astringent <laughs> and unpleasant. <laughs> you ever bit into a raw cranberry, you'd be surprised that the juice tastes so good. <laughs> At a certain point, like, when do we just agree that this doesn't want to be eaten, you know? <laughs> Why Why did we have to turn this into food? This is way more effort than it's worth. We have so many other options. <laughs> <laughs> right? There's a reason we don't have cranberry jam. Like... Yeah. It's, it's like, if you don't currently have a bladder infection, why? <laughs> it's a disgusting bog berry that's basically inedible. Why do we need to go to such lengths to eat it? Stop. We have so many other berries. <laughs> a lot. A lot. 
And, like, they're not hard to grow. Blackberries will grow wherever. They're basically a weed. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this hard. There's blackberries behind the nearby Costco. <laughs> they don't give a shit. They'll grow anywhere. Surprise, motherfucker. And they're delightful. <laughs> They'll try to stab you, don't get me wrong, but they're delightful otherwise. If cranberries had spikes the way that blackberries do, I would be shocked because there's no reason that you need to guard yourself that hard. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Their, their defense mechanism is tasting like a butthole. That's about it. <laughs> it tastes like nail polish remover. You don't need any further defense mechanism. Anyway, two of the voyagers, Pelletier and Saint-André, died on the 1st of November. Ah. A bit of a rough segue there. How much How much vitamin C do maggots have? Probably not enough. Probably no. No. <laughs> I don't. Some, though. I don't think that will save you from scurvy. I think you just have scurvy and also you've eaten a maggot. I think there's no winners there. <laughs> Nobody's won. Even if you survive, you're yeah, no. almost better off having not. At what cost? <laughs> At what cost? Yeah. Uh, on the 7th of November, help finally arrived in the form of three men sent by a kaicho bearing food. George Back had managed to reach him, losing one man to starvation along the way. A kaicho's men further fished and helped nerf the stricken expedition members back to health. They were finally well enough to continue and left for Fort Providence on November 15th, arriving there on December 11th. Apparently, a kaicho had lost three hunters on the way back, finding little game besides, and had given up on stocking the base camp as a lost, as it was a lost cause because he had assumed, somewhat reasonably, that the expedition would all die long before it was really relevant. <laughs> Man has a point. Why did we go with Oregon Trail as our, like, brutal location of board games? This is way more brutal than the Oregon Trail. We've got dysentery, and also, like, everybody's dead. My worst game of Oregon Trail didn't suck this hard. Lo locals and businessmen familiar with the area heavily criticized the poorly planned expedition, especially Franklin's rigidity and inability to adapt to facts on the ground. He had stubbornly refused to change his plans even when conditions had shifted drastically, and in doing so had led 11 men to their deaths and a further 9 to severe unnecessary hardship. Franklin was a relentless optimist, even in the face of unbelievable odds, to the point where it quite nearly killed him. I mean, eventually, it sort of did. <laughs> like, spoiler alert to a 300-year-old mystery, it probably did. I don't think he led a happy life in the Arctic. I think he's dead. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think he's still up there today. <laughs> Maybe on stormy nights you can hear him on the wind, but I don't think he's still alive. Uh, but the opinions of fur traders mattered very little in Britain, where Franklin was lionized for his bravery and his published account flew off the shelves so fast that the printer could barely keep up with demand. Even secondhand copies were sold for well over 10 pounds in the currency of the day. He was known affectionately as the man who ate his own boots, a kind of strange hero known primarily for nearly dying for no good reason. He had been promoted commander in absentia and was made captain upon his return, even being elected to the Royal Society. Perry's branch of the expedition had been far more successful, managing to make their way three quarters through the Arctic island chain before turning around due to the coming cold, returning to Britain having only lost one man. <laughs> so basically Franklin goes home and they're like, you did a terrible job, have a, have a lollipop. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, we'll promote you twice. <laughs> You're basically a scientist now. 
no one, the public is just not as interested in the people who are successful because they don't have a good scope for how difficult this really is. To them, the guy who nearly died had the more difficult time. So that's the more like, you know, prestigious position. But he didn't nearly die because it was hard. He nearly died because it was hard and he was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Which is different. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, like, what incredible entertainment, like, just backseat driving a fucking Arctic expedition would have been? You're just sitting around your living room shooting the shit in England and you're like, if that was me. If that was me. (sighs) Monday, Monday quarterbacking. (laughs) I would have made it to the Arctic. I, I would have found food. I would have done. That would be just incredible. What an amazing way to spend time. It, it's baffling that they thought they were going to get food from the Inuit. I'm like, one, they might not have enough to give you. Two, why should they feed you? <laughs> why should they feed you? Why should they feed And like, never mind that. You're a bunch of strange men. <laughs> <laughs> just rocking up like it's a fucking drive through <laughs> Like... Like, they don't, they don't have any reason to trust you? What the fuck? <laughs> Didn't call ahead, no call, show up unannounced, empty-handed, the brutest dinner guests imaginable. Because, like, the Inuit only live in small groups back in the day. Like, even even now, they do not have a huge population. Like, like and these are mostly family groups. Are you going to accept into your home... 20 strange, starving, desperate men when you have kids. <laughs> You're frightening the children. You're being a terrible house guest. Take your loose teeth and go. Franklin had a daughter as part of his brief marriage to poet Eleanor Porton, not because they divorced, but rather because she died of advanced tuberculosis less than two years in while he was away on his second overland polar voyage. Uh, This time, a far more successful survey of the coast near the mouth of the Mackenzie. Frank relied on far more on naval resources and personnel this time, and was aided by the merger of the Northwest and Hudson Bay companies, which reduced infighting and made the delivery of supplies more reliable. This expedition was once more joined by George Back and John Richardson, who I just just couldn't get enough enough of the taste of French cuisine. Mmm. Mmm. I wouldn't have gone back. Like, I understand George Back going back. Like, he was clearly the hero of the, of the whole thing. <laughs> that guy can clearly <laughs> handle himself. John Richardson saw a man shot in the face and, like, ate multiple <laughs> people under the disguise of Partridge. <laughs> I don't understand why he's here. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, like, pick another career, sir. Like, you've been there, done that, t-shirt purchased. Like, why, why do that shit again? Yeah, do you need an- another helping of maggots? Because there's other ways to get that. You can have, like, Italian cheese or whatever. <laughs> He's just like, I'm just, I just got a hankering for lichen, and there's only one place to get it. He's <laughs> got a craven I can't kick. A year after returning to England from his second voyage, which I'm not going to discuss in full because, I mean, it, it was it was fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It was It was fine. Boring. But after a year of returning to England from his second voyage, uh, Franklin married his dead wife's less dead friend, Jane Jane Griffin, in 1828. Hmm. He was likewise enthusiastically decorated, including a knighthood in 1829. I mean, being less dead is a good start. I mean, number one thing I look for in a spouse. Fiance's alive and kicking, that's kind of all I ask. Got a pulse? (laughs) 
<laughs> Much preferable to the alternative. I mean, some would disagree, but we don't allow those people in polite society. <laughs> the French as a whole can't have it. <laughs> I, I meant, I meant, I meant necrophiles, but whatever. <laughs> well, necrophiles and the French. We're just better off sequestering them. Uh, the now Lady Franklin was both intelligent and ambitious and had a fair deal of influence on her husband's success. In 1837, when Franklin was appointed as governor of Van Diemen's Land, modern-day Tasmania, and the British Empire's largest penal colony, his wife's heavy influence in politics behind the scenes raised some more than a few eyebrows. Franklin, meanwhile, developed a reputation as soft-hearted, poorly suiting the governor of a penal colony, while there, Lady Jane busied herself starting a local university and museum, and the couple adopted a six-year-old aboriginal girl, renaming her Mathena, and raising her alongside their own daughter. I, 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 don't know if, I don't know if this is just me, but like, you normally don't get to rename the child. It's not like a cat you got from the pound. No, and the kid was like, what, what did you say, six? Like Six. Approximately she, six. She answers to the, to the first name. Is it, yeah, she she knows her she, name. She's got a like, name. It's not like she's a baby. Like, you can just give babies. They don't know. Like, I got a niece recently. Her name's Jolene. Um, which oh, is, no. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like a little bit too much of homewrecker energy for someone who doesn't have teeth yet. Uh, <laughs> but but she doesn't know that. You can change no. it at any time. Oh, she'd be <laughs> she done the wiser. Know. Babies are stupid. But, yeah. uh. She didn't know shit. But, like, six-year-olds, they have thoughts. <laughs> they're like people at that point <laughs> yeah they're basically human beings you can't fucking just take in local aboriginal kids like they're pets that's not how it works yeah i mean uh, spoiler alert it doesn't go well um, oh. unfortunately franklin did not share his wife's capacity for political maneuvering and social machination and he was removed as governor in 1843 at which point the franklins abandoned Mathena at a nearby orphanage and left Oh my god, they didn't even <laughs> take her with them? They didn't even keep her. She's 12. <laughs> they just oh left my god. her. <laughs> She's been with them since she was six. That's half her life. They raised her alongside their, their daughter. <laughs> and then they were just like, nope, rehoming this one, and left? <laughs> yeah, they just dumped her on an orphanage and fucked off. Back to England. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Good God. Yeah, exactly like a dog you don't want from the pound. I, I, I can't even decide which is worse colonialism, keeping her or ditching her. They both suck. They're both awful. <laughs> Those are both bad. Why couldn't you just leave her alone? Oh, my God. It, this is worse than just not getting involved. <laughs> this is so much worse. It's so much worse. <laughs> Just leave the kid alone. Uh, this brings us to Franklin's third expedition, following the overseas route pioneered by Ross and Perry to explore the final unsurveyed stretch of the Northwest Passage and finally complete a full crossing. Franklin was not the first choice to lead the expedition, which is a polite way of saying he was the fourth. Because he's bad at it. <laughs> and he's been out of the game for like a decade. <laughs> You last came back in 1828. It is now the mid-40s. This is not a good post-retirement part-time job. No. This is just his, like, retirement side hustle. Finding the Northwest Passage. He's 59. He's Ooh. 59 when he goes on this. 
In the 1800s, this is like retirement age. Sir, you should be dead by now. <laughs> uh, excuse me, sir, you should be dead. <laughs> sir John Barrow, second secretary to the Admiralty and the primary force behind the search for the Northwest Passage, initially favored sending Perry again. But Perry declined because he was tired of being in the Arctic. He'd been there for years. Fair. James Clark Ross, nephew of John Ross, an explorer in his own right, refused on account of a promise to his new wife that he had finished with polar exploration. The, the third was James Fitzjames, the illegitimate son of a British diplomat and an extremely competent officer, but more importantly, a close friend of Barrow's younger son, who had covered up some kind of scandal involving his eldest while on shore leave in Singapore. Ah, nepotism beats competence every time. Fitzjames was rejected by the Admiralty due to age, as he was little more than 30, but the thing where he had no polar experience feels more pressing. This is not entry-level shit. No, I mean, like, back in the day, you could just walk up with a resume in hand and you're like, hello, sir, I'd like to work at your place of employment. And then they send you the Arctic the next day. Boomers. <laughs> Boomers. I don't even know what generation this would be called. I don't know. Back before they cared about that, I think. Two other candidates, George Back and Francis Crozier, were considered, but Barrow thought Back too argumentative, and Francis Crozier too middle class and Irish. Oh, obviously those are terrible traits to have. Yeah, as we can tell, George Back was the one, he was the MVP of the Coppermine expedition, I think we can all agree. <laughs> uh, and Francis Crozier, like, he'd been James Clark Ross's, like, stalwart second-in-command. Like, he, he had recent polar experience. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> Irish. <laughs> Can't have it. Too big of a risk. You'll eat all the potatoes and then we'll be sunk. <laughs> Is that racist? Probably. I close. I mean, like, he was represented by the, the AMC miniseries as just like a hardcore drunk, so like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that that feels racist. <laughs> I don't know if that was historically accurate, but it, he's the only notable Irish person in this entire cast. The other Irish person turned out to be like an imposter. Like, I don't, I don't know if the real Crozier had a drinking problem. I mean, everyone back then had a drinking problem. He's otherwise well represented. He's like kind of like the hero of the entire thing as much as anyone can be the hero when everyone's getting eaten by CGI polar bears. But like... <laughs> but I mean, casting the only Irish person as a potato-eating drunk, whew, that's some untrodden cultural ground right there. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> So thus, Franklin was appointed to head the expedition, with Crozier as second command aboard the HMS Terror, and Fitzjames commanding the flagship HMS Erebus. There was some concern about Franklin's age and health, and indeed, when they left port, he appears to have still been suffering the effects of a severe case of influenza he caught over the winter. Fitzjames, who himself had no experience in the Arctic, was charged with selecting the crew. While some of the crew had relevant polar experience, only six officers did. All in all, this was one of the least experienced expeditions in several decades, headed on one of the most ambitious voyages in some time. Oh, good. That's promising. That There's no way that this will end terribly. Fantastic combination. <laughs> we have no we... idea what we're doing, and we're going to do it as hard as possible. <laughs> right? We have no experience, but on the other hand, we also have not enough food. So, what could go wrong? 
they did actually have lots of food this time, but, you know. Oh, good. Good, I'll, good. I'll get into it. There's problems with the food. No. <laughs> but it's not the amount. Um, there's always problems with the food. There's always problems with the food. You, you, <laughs> what is there never not problems with the food? You're going to a desert but cold. <laughs> <laughs> Both the Erebus and the Terror were bombships, specially reinforced to withstand the constant vibration of firing mortars and later retrofitted for polar exploration. Terror had been built in 1813 for use in the War of 1812, while the Erebus was a decade younger, first launched in 1826. They were similar size, neither being much over 30 meters or 100 feet long. Both had seen significant use as polar vessels, most notably James Clark Ross's Antarctic Expedition. And for Franklin's expedition, both were fitted with additional iron plating across the hull and cross-planking for the decks to better distribute the force of crushing ice. In addition to their sails, they were likewise fitted with steam engines. Not great engines, mind. Locomotive engines with a top speed of around four knots, which is roughly the mid-to-high setting on the average home treadmill. The Atlantic Ocean is long. That's a long, that's a lot of ocean to do at at a brisk walking pace. They were the first ships thus equipped in the Royal Navy, and they carried 12 days' worth of coal. Oh! Is that enough to get across the Arctic? It seems like no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. That is not you're not going fast enough, and that's not enough time. Uh, they do have sails. They, they, they assumed that they would primarily do this on sail power, and that didn't feel ridiculous to them, because they'd done everything on sail power. <laughs> Nowadays, that feels silly, but at the time, they're just like, of course, this is how it's, this is how it's been done. <laughs> Who needs fuel? <laughs> We've got the wind on our side. <laughs> if we end up still, we'll just blow into it. <laughs> As the engines would likewise consume of around a ton of fresh water every hour on the hour when in use, the ships were also equipped with a novel desalination system. Uh, the expedition wasn't expected to take much more than a year or two, but they carried three years' worth of food and other supplies in case of delays, including 8,000 cans of preserves. Oh, we will not be preserveless. So help me God. We shall have tomatoes. <laughs> it fucking kills us all. Uh, no coal, would... but enough tomatoes. God damn it. They would have no effective means of communication once they were in the depth of the Arctic, radio still being decades away at this point. Sir John Ross had experimented with homing pigeons to some success, but the Franklin expedition planned to use the Arctic post, what I hesitate to call a system of leaving messages in large cairns, stacks of rocks on the shore, and hoping somebody might stumble across them and follow the instructions on the message within. In this case, pre-printed forms requesting that they be forwarded to the nearest British consul, in several different languages, but notably, not Inuit. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> uh, there was little expectation of any, that any message from the expedition would reach Britain before the third year. Franklin Expedition set out from England on May 19th, 1845. They stopped briefly on the Orkney Isles off the Scottish coast to pick up supplies, then crossed the Atlantic, accompanied by HMS Rattler and Barreto Jr., a transport ship. A month later, later, they arrived at Disco Bay on the west coast of Greenland. Ten oxen carried by the Barreto Jr. were slaughtered for meat, and the two escort ships were dismissed, carrying back letters as well as five ill crew members, leaving a total accompaniment of 129 souls, 24 officers, and 105 men. 
In late July, the two ships were spotted by whalers murdered along Baffin Bay, apparently awaiting better conditions to cross into Lancaster Sound. This would be the last time the expedition would be seen alive by Europeans. They simply disappeared into the frozen north. Lady Franklin began pressing for a search party to be sent in early 1847, hoping that a team might be sent in the window presented by the summer. But Franklin had three years' worth of provisions, and the Admiralty stance was that there was no need for alarm. <laughs> They're like, he's fine. Our official stance is that, like, hey, it's all good. He's got 8,000 cans of tomatoes. What could go wrong? They instead sent three search parties in the spring of 1848. The first was overland to the mouth of the Mackenzie, headed by Scottish explorer and surgeon John Ray, and Sir John Richardson, who was apparently hungry enough for fucking thirds. <laughs> I crave the maggots. They taste of gooseberries. The second and third would be overseas, one following Franklin's likely path from the Atlantic side into Lancaster Sound, led by James Clark Ross, the other from the Pacific, read by Henry, by Henry Keller. Just a bunch of white dudes with generic white dude names. We've got John and John and James and Henry. <laughs> they shall find other John. <laughs> <laughs> Assemble the Richards, we sail at dawn. <laughs> None found a trace of the lost expedition, save John Ray, who found a few pieces of wood that may have come from a European ship in April 1851. A wave of six rescue expeditions came to the Arctic in 1850, this time with some Americans joining in on the search. And one finally found something. Signs that Franklin's expedition had been camped and overwintered in the sheltered natural harbor on tiny Beachy Island, a ways into Lancaster Sound, from 1845 to 1846, including a playful tower of empty cans. There was a cairn, but strangely no message inside. Ships converged on the sites, including the Lady Franklin, whose surgeon, Robert Goodsir, brother of assistant surgeon Harry Goodsir of the HMS Erebus, found three graves. These Ooh. graves were marked John Torrington, John Hartnell, and William Brain. Oh no, the Johns! The, the Johns are dead! Over a century later, in the 1980s, anthropologist Owen Beattie exhumed the bodies, which were remarkably well-preserved, almost mummified and performed autopsies. The first, lead stoker John Torrington of HMS Terror, would have been no more than 20 at the time of his death, listed on his grave as January 1st, 1846. He was clearly severely ill and had been for some time. He was visibly emaciated and would have weighed around 38.5 kilos, or 85 pounds. Ooh. Dangerously thin, even for a man 5 foot 4 tall. His lungs were scarred, indicating prior tuberculosis, but it's more likely that he died of pneumonia. Ooh. Samples taken from his hair and soft tissue indicated extremely high levels of lead exposure, 413 to 657 parts per million. What do we tell you on this podcast every single time? Don't eat lead. Lead. Don't eat the lead. Less drastic results for lead came back from Hartnell and Brain. 183 to 313 parts per million, and 145 to 280 parts per million, respectively. Likewise, many of the piled cans were improperly soldered, likely because the contract to supply all 8,000 of them had been awarded only seven weeks before the expedition left, 
and the rush led to lead solder sloppily spread inside of the cans, likely leaching into the food inside. Ooh. Canned food was used elsewhere in the Navy, and nowhere else was associated with a notable increase in lead poisoning. Um, they would have had to have been eating around 3.3 milligrams a day before they started to get genuinely sick. In fairness, if you're eating improperly sealed cans, the botulism will kill you way before the lead poisoning can. <laughs> Wait, you're not even going to feel the lead before you feel your ass explode. <laughs> <laughs> it is possible, likewise, that the desalination system had used lead pipes or soldering, contributing to the high lead exposure through leadened water. Even so, these are high levels of variation, and we don't have a good baseline for how much lead the average 19th century British sailor was exposed to, though Inuit remains from the same area showed levels around 26 to 36 parts per million, around a tenth of those found in the Erebus crew remains. In Torrington's case, uh, the lead level in the terminal part of his scalp hair was more than 600 parts per million, but was slightly less in hair nearer the scalp, suggesting that his lead intake diminished during the last weeks of his life when he was seriously ill, which possibly means that he just stopped eating. What's the matter? Are you too sick to eat your lead? <laughs> yeah, like, there is really no safe level of lead exposure. Like, this is inorganic lead, rather than a far more toxic organic lead compound. So neurological symptoms like delirium, hallucinations, and CGI polar bears are unlikely. Uh, still, that leaves us with abdominal pain, constipation, headaches, memory problems, immune suppression, infertility, and eventually the degeneration of every single organ. I can't tell whether or not they had trouble having kids. Um, no notable pregnancies aboard, I assume. But <laughs> They were done knocking up the locals at this point. Uh, yeah, there's not enough locals to knock up, really. Giving saucy looks to the caribou, just... <laughs> Lead will eventually drive you to that. Gets real lonely out in the Arctic. <laughs> as high of a lead of, of lead exposure as Torrington had, it likely exacerbated his illness. No matter what you're dying of, lead will kill you faster. According to the grave marker of able seaman John Hartnell of HMS Erebus, he died at 25 years old on January 4th, 1846, only three days after Torrington. He was buried in a shirt with the date 1844 and the initials T.H., likely those of his brother Thomas, another able seaman aboard the Erebus. His right eye was damaged, but it's unclear whether or not this was before or after death. A later micro-X-ray fluorescent study on Hartnell's nails found the lead isotope of new and old bone deposits was the same, possibly disputing that he was ingesting high amounts of new lead, but also dangerously low levels of zinc a micronutrient normally found in common protein sources like meat, dairy, nuts, and legumes, but also in whole grains and potatoes. Zinc deficiency, much like lead poisoning, can result in cognitive impairment and immune suppression, and, much like scurvy, can prevent wounds from healing. Mm. It's basically impossible with the modern diet to develop a zinc deficiency because it's in fucking everything now. Oh. <laughs> like... I don't want people listening to this to be like, oh, God, <laughs> this is a thing I need to monitor. Like, no, you're, you're good. Like, zinc is an unfussy me metal. Scurvy is common at sea because vitamin C is a delicate molecule that rarely survives preservation. Zinc doesn't give a shit. It don't care. Mild deficiency is relatively common in, like, the third world, uh, but severe deficiency is rare if you're not a vegan with a nut allergy. 
There are autistic adults who've eaten nothing but chicken nuggets and peanut butter jelly sandwiches on white bread for every meal of the day for the last 40 years who don't have zinc deficiencies. No, they're good. <laughs> the most common cause of zinc deficiency is just not eating enough food. Yeah. And the second is overconsumption of alcohol, which they would not have had enough access to. No, and and I, I if you're if you're just not eating at all, I think you've got you've got a multitude of problems at that point. The final cadaver, William Brain, a Royal Marine on the HMS Erebus, died on April 3rd, 1846, at the age of 32. Uh, his body had small bite marks, likely from rats, while his body was stored up on board the ship. Mm. Uh, he likewise had signs of tuberculosis, specifically spinal tuberculosis, but is unlikely to be his primary cause of death, which is typically listed as lead poisoning. It's pretty bad when somebody has, like, obvious spinal tuberculosis and they're like, honestly, not even, not even cracking this dude's top three concerns. <laughs> like... uh, and these, there are a lot of commonalities between these bodies, but without greater context, it's difficult to say what they all mean or if they mean anything. They're all relatively young, all have high lead levels, two died very close to one another, two shine so show signs of tuberculosis, and two show signs of severe malnutrition. And all that could just mean that they're 19th century British sailors in a dangerous environment. But there's also clear signs of concern. <laughs> like, these guys died less than a year in. Two of them died only after six months in the Arctic. Yeah, they do show that Arctic exploration was a bad time. That, that seems clear. <laughs> but, like, they should have plenty of food at this point. There shouldn't be lethal malnutrition. <laughs> no! You, where's all your thousands and thousands of cans of tomatoes? Where are those? How did this go so sideways so quickly? And, and, like, the fact that there's no message would indicate, like, if there is malnutrition, they don't know about it yet. No, they're just like, I guess everybody's dying. That's just the thing that's happening. Wonder what that shit's about. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, or, like, these guys are just the frailest. Because, like, the first guy, the stoker, there's every reason to believe that he would be more vulnerable to lung disease. But, like, if he'd been sickly when they'd gone up there, wouldn't he have been sent home? So, like, either way, that's a fast deterioration. Malnutrition is not a fast way to die. No, it's a bad time for a while. <laughs> Another problem potentially created by the poor so soldering of the can, beyond the old toxic metal thing, uh, is, of course, spoilage and food poisoning. Yay, botulism! Yeah, at best, this might result in unusable food. At worst, we're talking death by diarrhea. To this day, you should not eat dented cans for this reason. <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> if it smells funny, throw it in the garbage. Yeah, don't eat that shit. You can get another one for a dollar. Stop! <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth the diarrhea. The warning instinct will get you killed. Even if you survive, you'll be a changed man. <laughs> <laughs> you will shit out your soul. The next two years saw two more expeditions, but no new information. One fellow, Edward Belcher, primarily succeeded in alienating all of his subordinates and losing four out of five of his ice ships in the ice. <laughs> he nearly got court-martialed. <laughs> in fact, he was. He was just not found guilty. <laughs> uh, one of his ships, uh, HMS Resolute, was eventually recovered, and its timbers were later used to make three desks, one of which was oh. given to the President of the United States by Queen Victoria. Nifty. Yeah, so that's where the President's desk is from. Oh, it's not called desk. a Resolute Desk because it's like, oh, the President's really res- No, that's the ship it's from. Didn't know. Yeah. Thought it was just for all the yeah. Resolutin that happened at it, but, uh, fun. That's a fun fact. 
It was given to Hayes, I think. And then they just keep that shit forever. You can't throw it a gift. Years after Sir John Richardson had left, apparently disappointed by the lack of human meat, uh, John Ray had continued <laughs> searching for Franklin's expedition alongside performing geographical surveys for the Hudson Bay Company in the far north. I'm, I'm being really mean to Sir John Richardson, but like... <laughs> but sir! I have, no reason to, I have no reason to hate this man, but I do not understand why he kept coming back. <laughs> like, was for leftovers. Is there something going on at home, dude? Like, <laughs> What part of this was better than being in Britain? <laughs> During scarce winters, John Ray and his people would share their resources with the locals, building rapport with the natives, as well as regularly interviewing them of whether they had encountered or heard about foreigners lost in the ice. In April 1853, while surveying the Boothia Peninsula, fuck's sakes, the Boothia Peninsula, um, (laughs) Ray encountered, I'm not saying it properly, it's hard with my speech impediment. I just... (laughs) I can sound normal 90% of the time, but Busia Peninsula is hard. No, that's a doozy. (laughs) That one's a doozy. Ray encountered some Inuit, one with a gold cap band. When asked, the Inuit replied that he had acquired it 10 or 12 days away, where 35 to 40 foreigners had starved to death. Hmm, that seems like a solid lead. Interesting. That's a very large group of white people. Tell me more. (laughs) Ray bought the band and offered it to purchase any similar item. When Ray returned to Repulse Bay on May 26th, he was met by several Inuit who had brought artifacts for trade that could have only come from Terror and Erebus, including a small silver plate engraved Sir John Franklin, KCH. Well, that'll do her. that's That's a dead ringer. Dishes are actually how they identify most shipwrecks. The fact that, like, most fancy folk had monogrammed dishes is actually how they've identified the majority of wrecks. According to them, some other Inuit had run across around 40 foreigners marching south dragging a boat. This was almost definitely definitely on King William's Island, but obviously the Inuit wouldn't have called it that. Um, Also, the, the British didn't call it that. They called it King William's Land because they were not aware it was not a peninsula. Oh, so, we're real early into this surveying the Arctic business. That was actually the Northwest Passage. Um, it's it's the, the most navigable route is the southern route around King William's Island. Oh, fun. The Simpson Strait. <laughs> Didn't know what they'd stumbled on. Didn't know what they had. Yeah, they, they kind of did find it. The foreigners were led by a tall, stout man with a telescope. Possibly Francis Crozier. The foreigners mined that their ships had been crushed by ice and they were going south to hunt deer. They likewise purchased a small seal. When the Inuit returned to the area the next spring, they found 30 corpses on the mainland around a day northwest of the Back River, as well as five on a nearby island. I was going to say, how far south do you have to go before you find deer? I feel like a while. Oh, a ways. Some, some had been buried. Leathers lay in tents or under the boat. But some were scattered. Disarticulated. One of the island bodies was an officer with a telescope strapped to his shoulders and a double-barreled gun beneath him. Some of the corpses were mutilated, and by the contents of the kettles, at least some of the men had resorted to cannibalism. The Inuit took watches, compasses, telescopes, and guns, as well as forks, spoons, and coins, and traded them to others as holes or as in pieces. I mean, no sense letting it go to waste. (laughs) Perfectly good spoons. Ray sent reports of his finding to the Admiralty and left as soon as the ice cleared, abandoning his survey in favor of reporting back in person. 
When he arrived in England in October, it was to find that the Admiralty had leaked his report to the press to much public outcry and a pissed Mrs. Franklin. Oh, fuck you guys. Can you imagine sailing for like a month to find out somebody's already leaked your- I'd be pissed. He very reasonably assumed that they wouldn't put the full details out. (laughs) Oh, the cannibalism and all. We really- we went whole hog on this. Oh, yeah. Full tabloid. They just gave them the full report. Ooh. Like, like, no, like, they had, like, bones that had clearly been cooked to suck the marrow out. Like, Mm. like, clear cut marks for defleshing that you would normally see in butchery? Yeah. Oh, the the kind of news you want to deliver in a soft voice. Yeah, like something you want to say gently to the widows. Not like something you want blared on the evening news. No, 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 not, not the There's a reason we usually inform the families first, you fucks. Yeah, so we can kind of try to, try to cushion that a little bit. Yeah, Lady Franklin was so angry (laughs) at this impugning of her husband's legacy that she unsuccessfully campaigned against Ray being awarded the Admiralty's 10,000 pound bounty for ascertaining the fate of the expedition. And went so far as to sit Charles Dickens on him. <laughs> <laughs> what what dog does Charles Dickens have in this fight? Uh, like, his defense of Franklin involved uh, quite a bit of disparagement of the accounts of Eskimo savages. Uh, Ooh. And Ooh. even insinuating the Inuit themselves may have had some hand in their demise. They don't. They know how to eat seal. They don't need to eat people. They don't need to eat white dude. They've they've figured this northern survival thing out. No, they're gonna eat some healthy, nutritious seal. <laughs> like also, like eating eating starving people is how you get rabbit poisoning. Yeah, it's gonna make the problem worse. If you eat meat that's too low in fat, you will shit yourself to death. It's called protein poisoning. Yeah, that's why you should not try to eat a diet of only rabbit if you're ever out in the wilderness. Because you'll die. You'll get rabbit starvation. Unfortunately for Victorian sensibilities, future European skeletal remains found in the area indeed demonstrated cut and cooking marks characteristic of cannibalism. But if it is any condolence to the ghost of Jane Franklin, the fact that at least some of the crew crossed the Simpson Strait from King William's Island to the mainland means that they did discover the final chunk of the Northwest Passage. And more importantly still, her husband almost certainly never ate any of his crew, in part because he was already... Super dead. He was <laughs> so dead by that point. Task failed successfully. He did not succeed even well enough to eat the remainder of his crew. <laughs> no, the the 59-year-old in poor health didn't make it to the cannibalism part of the game. The Admiralty refused to send another investigative expedition to the area, indicated by Ray's report, because Britain was by then at war in Crimea, but officially listed the crew as deceased. Instead, Lady Franklin commissioned and fundraised an expedition under Francis Leopold McClintock aboard the steam schooner Fox, leaving from Aberdeen July 1857 to search King William's Island. On May 5th, 1859, the McClintock expedition, after some delay, found a large cairn on the northern coast of King William's Island containing a document, one of the Franklin expedition's pre-printed admiralty forms. On it, there were two messages— The first, dated May 28th, 1847, confirmed that they had spent their first winter at Beachy, after which they circumnavigated nearby Cornwallis Island. They then headed south and became caught in ice northwest of King William's Land, where they spent the second winter of 
1846 to 1847. Sir John Franklin was in command, and all was well. It was signed by Lieutenant Graham Gore and Mate Charles DeVoe, both of the Erebus, but it is thought to have been written by Fitzjames aboard Erebus and later signed by the landing party. The note contained basic factual errors, including dating the overwintering at Beachy as 1846 rather than 1845. Mm. The second message was dated April 25th, 1848, nearly a year later. Erebus and Terra were still trapped fast in the ice northwest of King William's Land, and they had abandoned ship as of April 22nd. Nine officers and 11 crew were dead, including Franklin himself as of June 11th, 1847, exactly two weeks after the first note where all was well. That's also today, the day that we're recording this. Happy death anniversary. Holy shit, really? It is. <laughs> happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, John Franklin is dead. <laughs> Catchy. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. It's an it's death day. <laughs> Cake for <Yay>! everyone. <laughs> Zinc for everyone. Have have a lemon in his honor, okay? <laughs> Crozier was now in charge, and the 105 survivors planned to make south for Back River. This final message was signed by Crozier and Fitz James. They were probably going to try to make for Great Slave Lake, uh, the Hudson Bay Company, but that's like 600 miles away. Yeah, odds are not good. And, and here's another weird thing. Other than, like, the very obvious weirdness of, like, hey, everything is fine, but also 14 days later, the captain is dead. Um, like, like, did he decline really fast, or were you lying? <laughs> <laughs> it's just that famous Franklin optimism. Yeah, no, we're fine. We're fine. Uh, my eyeballs are bleeding, but we're good. I want, I want to note something about the proportion of deaths. So we have nine dead officers and 11 dead crew. There were, to begin with, only 105 crew and 24 officers. So it's the officers dropping like flies, really. Which is weird! That, that's a lot of dead officers! Yeah, that's not normally how that goes. Was there an explosion in the captain's quarters? <laughs> did, did, <laughs> did a dinner in, in the officer's mess go terribly wrong? Normally, the crew is in far more danger, even in a situation of contagious disease. Like, if they had tuberculosis on board, you'd expect the people who are packed most tightly together to get more disease. Yeah, that's, that's unusual. That, it's weird. It's extremely weird. And it, it makes you wonder if they were eating something very different from what the crew was. Maybe they died of super syphilis and they were all just fucking each other. Gets lonely out at sea. Uh, see, that was, that was, that, you're not even the first one to suggest that to me. Am I not? You are not even, you are not the first one who I explained this to. I was explaining this to, to Mr. Chan, uh, he of unsound mind. His, his immediate suggestion was, was just rampant orgies among, among, among the upper classes. I'm, I'm troubled that I had a similar thought process to your deeply disturbed housemate. <laughs> No, that was his first thought. He th he's just like, are they just the the orgy? Like they had syphilis, they had orgies, and they all died. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
The McClintock expedition likewise found a lifeboat with two skeletons, sand skulls, on the western edge of King Williams. It's thought that this might have been taken by animals. Hmm. The boat had a strange assortment of equipment, including chocolate, combs, cutlery, scented soap, slippers, sponges, tea, and boots. Uh, boots aside, bizarre choices to pack on a desperate starvation march to the Canadian mainland. Uh, including, <laughs> like, one of, the, one of the books was, like, The Vicar of Wakefield. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of things that I pack for a relaxing evening in my bathtub, not for a thousand-mile death march. <laughs> You know, we got our we got our combs, cutlery, scented soaps, slippers, chocolate, sponges, tea, books. Yeah, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> the south of France? <laughs> you're in the you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> what do you do? Leave it on the ship. I understand it's a good book, probably. I haven't read it, but like educational or not, leave it behind. <laughs> You're dying of starvation and lead poisoning. The scented soaps are the least of your concern. They found another two skeletons on a low hill, and on the southern coast they found one more skeleton face down on the shore dressed in a steward's uniform, carrying papers that might have come from the terror, including a seaman's certificate for Chief Petty Officer Harry Pelger, captain of the foretop. These remains are believed tentatively to be those of terror gunroom steward Thomas Armitage. Unsatisfied with these answers, Lady Franklin would continue funding expeditions until her death. Charles Francis Hall, an American explorer who lived among the Inuit, continued taking testimony, as well as finding further remains and relics on the island at the 1860s. The Inuit led him to a shallow grave on King Williams, most likely containing assistant surgeon Harry Goodsir, based on the isotopes indicating a youth in Scotland and his dental work. Many of the skeletal remains found during the 19th century were later found to have pitting consistent with scurvy. The Inuit even mentioned once having boarded one of the ships in 1850, finding the corpse of a tall man inside and, strangely, one of the masts on fire, possibly meaning smoke was coming from one of the chimneys. This is corroborated <laughs> by the fact that the Inuit had gotten a hold of copper sheeting. <laughs> Just dead dude and a mast on fire, nothing to see here. <laughs> Perfectly normal. <laughs> all is well. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. So it's it's unclear whether or not everyone died on the death march down King William's land, or whether or not some may have returned to the ship and tried to and tried to sail further south. It, it's unclear. September seventh, two thousand and fourteen, Parks Canada expedition finally discovered the sunken Erebus. Mm. 11 meters underwater at the bottom of Wilmot and Crampton Bay, south of Simpson Strait, which was, incidentally, broadly where the Inuit said it would be, uh, sunk it <laughs> in a place they called Utjalik, a shallow place with its mass then still above water, far south of its 1848 position. In October, Prime Minister Stephen Joseph motherfucking Harper <laughs> made an <laughs> announcement confirming it was HMS Erebus, which is just how recent this is. That is our second most recent prime minister. That's wild. That is wild, and it's the the whole time the Inuit are like, it's it's fucking here. Like the boats, we know where the boat is. And incidentally, September twelfth, two thousand sixteen, the Arctic Research Council found HMS Terror, twenty four meters or seventy uh, seventy nine feet underwater, north of Simpson Strait, along the coast of King William's Island, appropriately. In Terror Bay. Ah, what a fun little coincidence. Yeah. 
So it's unclear how far they drifted before or after they sank. They might have drifted all the way there and then sank, or sank and then drifted there to an extent. But uh, we've had numerous robot investigations and diving investigations, exploring the insides of the ships. Further exploration, however, was cancelled due to COVID! <laughs> God damn it, this is recent! <laughs> and like, you might be wondering, like, why the fuck is Parks Canada spending government money on this? Uh, this is obviously quite expensive. Uh, and it's because the Canadian government is anxious to secure its claim to the Arctic. <laughs> we have owned the Arctic so recently. Like, we, we didn't even <laughs> want to take it from the British back in the day. We were, we, we were not interested in having it because it was just this big wasteland, uh, as far as we were concerned. But now it's extremely important for resource reasons. Uh, so we really want to insist that this belongs to us. Thank you very much. Also, the alternative is Russia, so, yeah, I think, so I think the planet's pretty eager for the Arctic to be Canadian. There's a vested interest in a Canadian Arctic, so we're like, if it's gonna be ours, we gotta take good care of it. And most people who live in the Arctic probably, like, I don't even know if they would consider themselves Canadians. Like, I think technically the Inuit, in the eyes of international law, belong to us, but, like, they might not agree! <laughs> uh, and very Fair. few settler colonialists live up there. <laughs> But yeah, that's probably the ultimate fate of the Erebus. There is some possibility that we might be able to get some documents from the Wreck of Terror. Uh, specifically, uh, Crozier's uh, uh, room was um, blocked due to silt. And mm. it, it seems to be in excellent condition. And if there is any possibility of finding out what happened from the perspective of the men who died, it is that. It's very cold. It's unlikely that papers would have rotted to a huge extent. They're un uh, probably unbelievably waterlogged and damaged, but it is very likely that we could recover and through some modern forensic techniques, get an idea of what was written in these documents, if they are there. That's uh, what a fun search that will be. <laughs> like April 1st, all is well. April 3rd, we have all died. <laughs> everyone's dead and we're eating the boy you know it's not <laughs> how did we how what happens between those two points how did we get there <laughs> the thing is like this isn't a grand mystery we know broadly what happened we're vague on the specifics but we know <laughs> i mean we know what happened it's the canadian arctic you've succumbed to some combination of hypothermia scurvy malnutrition and uh, bears? It's very unlikely to be bears, but... Uh, very unlikely bears. Bears. If, if even one of them was eaten by a bear, I will I will be shocked. <laughs> I mean, all you need... The cold and the, and the, uh, and the malnutrition are enough. That's plenty. That's enough challenges. But we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Happy anniversary to the death of the Sir John Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> Pour one out for Johnny. I'm Jessica. And I have been Janelle. This has been Histories and Mysteries. Hey, it's Franklin Coming over to play Growing a little Every day Stories got time to spend
Franklin.